Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. I'm old now, I'm 42. That's why I'm wearing a cap so that I look young. Except my son does explain to me when you buy a $3 cap at Kmart, it doesn't look that young. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't care. I, I shop on the basis of one thing only, price. Yeah, so I saw my fashion set anyway. What was I saying? Wait, I'm old. I'm 42. I actually, and we're celebrating, oh, the other day we celebrated our 21st wedding anniversary, my wife, Chrissy and I. Uh, so we were married when we were 21 and we've been now married for 21 years. So uh, it's pretty awesome, isn't it? So we're, we're actually fully institutionalized and incapable of independent thought, uh, which is actually awesome. Saves on arguments when the other person is doing half the thinking for you. Uh, but, um, you know, I, at 42, I know less than I ever knew. I, I literally know I'm less sure about everything, but I'm more sure of one thing, really. Uh, and, and, and I reckon, you know, this morning I spoke about trajectory. And, and this morning I, I, I want to focus in a little bit more detail. I talked this morning about the fact that, thank you. No, you're all good. You carry on. You, you, you take a break. There's a cup of tea out the back there. Some <laughs> vanilla wines. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, um, I was speaking about trajectory this morning. Uh, but today, I'm just talking this morning about momentum. Um, and momentum sounds exciting, but it's mostly really dull, right? So just bear with me. We'll get done quickly and move out. But the reality is, it, there's a few things that happen in your growing up life that shape your attitude and approach to just about everything. And uh, one of the things I've noticed as a dad is probably the greatest aspect of parenting. It's not parenting really, but one of my, the funnest byproducts of being a dad is watching Saturday sport. I'm a big sports fan. I'm a big sports fan. And um, a lot of parents complain about Saturday sport. One of the parents I know who complains a lot about Saturday sport is Christine Smith, my wife. Uh, so she literally doesn't engage in it beyond the early stages of netball. She wants to get them going on the netball. Uh, but once the weather turns, then it's dad's job to get you to netball, right? The spring, you know, autumn netball, she's involved after that. Uh, she's very much a weather-dependent supporter. Is anybody else... Like that, if you yeah, if you know Wellington weather in the winter, there's some days uh, that you have to be more committed as a supporter than as a player. Uh, especially, uh, there was there's one Saturday where I, was, it, it, I watched it, an hour of Lucia at 8:30, an hour and a half of Austin at 10, and then two hours because they they stretch out the mayhem as they get older. Uh, two hours of Elliot, and that was all in a five degrees temperature, strong southerly with little bits of hail every now and then, right? Obviously, because I'm from New Zealand, I was underdressed for the occasion. In other parts, other parts of the world, no colder than here, they actually wear warm clothes in the winter. Right? But here, we complained, we're just like, oh man, it's freezing. Would you put a jacket on? But anyhow, I was freezing. I got home, I had to have a bath just to warm up. Right, you know, you're lying in a hot bath, but you still feel cold. Uh, anyway, it was terrible. But the thing about uh, kids' sport that I find interesting, particularly rugby, one of the things that's interesting is once they get tackling, 
So when they're about nine or ten, they start t- tackling or at least running into each other. Um, once they start tackling, it becomes, it becomes, it's, it's on a smaller field. There's less players. There's less rules because obviously rugby's got t- too many of those. But the um, once they get to like nine or ten years old, these boys, it becomes a full. It's fully rugby. Like it's fully rugby. They're, they're running up and down, right? Rugby. They're, they're getting muddy. Rugby, they're crashing into each other. Rugby, they're swearing, they're punching, they're shouting at referees. Like it's fully rugby, right? There's nine-year-old boys, and they think that they are all blacks, right? The problem is that they're both teams think they're the worst in the world, right? And so you get this 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 level of tension that's amazing. And for a parent watching, it actually becomes quite exciting. It's genuine competition. So you're standing on the sideline watching, and one of the interesting things you might have noticed about Wellington is there's no flat bits. Well, there is Kill Bernie, but we don't talk about it. There's no flat bits in the suburbs where I choose to live, right? Up on the Western Hills, right? There's no flat bits. But what they have done over the last hundred years or so is they've filled in various gullies with rubbish, which creates a little flat bit, which you then turn into a playing surface. Now, there's two problems with this. Number one is that when you just fill up a gully with rubbish and then grass the top of it, it doesn't stay flat for very long, right? Various bits sink, other bits rise, and so you get uh, quite an undulating surface, you know, with pretty significant puddling that takes place. The other thing that you get with a very old rubbish dump is that for some reason, it doesn't really matter how deep the rubbish is buried. Yeah, certain things... Certain things, aromas, chemical waste, other things float to the surface with an alarming, an alarming sort of result, meaning that the water that puddles becomes a little bit oily, funny colors, and a very intense smell. So uh, there's this one, <laughs> but perfect for kids to play rugby on, right? Perfect. It's a great space. The... Ian Galloway Park is halfway between the suburb of Northland and halfway between the suburb of Karori, which I had to say probably Karori. Uh, and uh, both people, fr- people from Karori describe it as being in Northland, and people from Northland describe it as being in Karori because it's actually a 100-year-old rubbish dump that we pretend is a playing surface. It's in a valley that faces north and south, so it doesn't matter which way the wind is blowing, or even if there's no wind at all, it seems to whistle through. Right? So it doesn't matter what the temperature is at your house when you get down to Ian Galloway. Not only is it smelly and muddy, it's cold and breezy. Perfect for kids to play rugby in, right? So when the kids start playing rugby, they, they, you know, someone will kick the ball. Then they run around after it. There's sort of a big gang of boys all wrestling around in the mud. Uh, and what tends to happen at some point, every team has, there's a flash kid on every team. There's a flash kid. Bit faster than everyone else. Uh, likes to score lots of tries. But once the tackling comes in and it gets a bit more complex, every now and then that fast kid will step inside and a slow kid like Elliot will clobber them from behind, right? This, these are the things that slow kids live for. Those moments when they're, they're flash kids, the flash kid winger doesn't see them coming from behind, right? And you can hear the contact from the sideline. It makes the dad's heart proud. And then often what happens, you know, because... If your kid scores lots of tries, you can be proud about that. If your kid just makes one evil tackle a year, that's enough to make you proud, right? Yeah, that first kid, he deserved it, right? 
But anyway, what usually happens when flash kid gets tackled, the one time they get tackled in a season, right, they tend to not, they don't respond well, um, and they tend to stay on the ground. Rugby, if you don't know if you've seen rugby, there's a lot of on the ground, but the point of the game is to be standing up, chasing after the ball, right? So if you, that's a big part of the game. On the ground happens, but the game isn't really about lying on the ground. That's called summer holidays, right? When it's raining and muddy, not, it's not ideal, right? It's not perfect conditions for lying on the ground. Better off, jump up to your feet again and chase after the ball. That's what everyone else is doing. Right? But what happens is the kid will lie down on the ground and they'll stay lying down for a little bit. Obviously, they, you know, there's always a bit of time on the ground. But after a while, there's this, it stretches out a little. You feel the tension building on the sideline amongst the dads. Mums are at home, obviously, and the dads are getting tense on the sideline. The coaches know what he's saying because our coach used to stand beyond the dead ball line at, his, at the defensive end where a lot of the action was, you know. Uh, you know, he could chat with the team on a minute-by-minute minute basis. When they gathered there for a few minutes while someone kicked a goal, he could chat with the team, keep them G'd up. Yeah, come on, boys, get back out there. You know, the, uh, if you don't know anything about Wellington, Karori is a suburb where small white people live. Not all suburbs in Karori are exclusively for skinny white people, right? And so when we played anybody else, there was a different size challenge, right? But anyway... Back to the kid lying on the ground. Flash kid's lying on the ground. The game sort of moves on, not quickly. It just sort of meanders. The ball's over here now somewhere in amongst a group of people, right? And then the kid's still lying on the ground, right? And so this tension builds as we wait to see what's going to happen. And so one of the dads from the sideline, usually the kid's dad, but not always, but usually the kid's dad will call out because we had a sort of unwritten rule. You don't run on the field. There's no mums there, so no one's going to run on the field. Yeah, God forbid the kid whose mum is there who runs on the field. It's going to work out. Long term, you're not helping that child, right? Yes, they might be hurt. You're helping them in the moment, but you're creating for them emotional scars that will be picked at by their peers for years to come. So a dad will shout from the sideline. There's a handy sideline that someone's painted on here. A dad will shout from the sideline these words. Get up, mate. Just get up, mate. It's a wonderful test to see whether someone's really hurt. Because if they're really hurt, they won't be able to get up, right? Yeah. Well, no, they are. they're definitely hurt. They're hurt, but they're not actually, you know, these are nine-year-olds, ten-year-olds. There's nobody on the field who can break another person. At 13, yes. Then Tico's people break our people, right? But... But at 9 and 10, at 9 and 10, they have sensible weight restrictions. So the Tico's friends are playing for the under-13s already, right? And then this is exclusively for skinny people now, right? So no one, so the kid is hurt, but they're not actually broken, right? They're just a bit embarrassed that they got, and, then they, and then they're lying in the puddle. And then, so someone calls out, get up, mate. And the game moves on. And the kid's lying in the puddle. And the embarrassment begins to build, right? And so a smart kid looks around sheepishly, runs and joins back into the game, right? Because the game moves on. The game will move on. Doesn't matter how long the kid lies in the puddle, the other boys are not interested. 
Because the game is not about lying on the ground. The game is about getting up and running after the ball, right? Yes, there are occasions where you get crashed into by other people unexpectedly and you find yourself lying on the ground in a puddle. But the longer you extend your time lying on the ground in the puddle, the less enjoyment you have because that's not the game. The reality is in life, the game moves on in exactly the same way. And I'm standing on the sideline and my message to you is, get up, mate. Get up, because you're not broken. You're just hurt. And there's a really big difference between being broken and being hurt. And do you know how, how we know and how you will know whether you're broken or not is when you try and stand up. Until you try and stand up, we don't know that you have a compound fracture to the femur. When you do stand up and you have a compound fracture to the femur, we'll deal with it then, right? There's professionals for that. But up until then, do you know the reality is that perhaps you're just lying in a puddle? Perhaps it's your perhaps you're not actually that hurt as much, perhaps you're just more embarrassed. And if you leave it long enough, it gets too embarrassing to even get up. Because the game's moved on. They're at the other end of the field. Someone's kicking a conversion. And you're lying in a puddle. I wonder how many Christians in Christchurch tonight are just lying in a puddle somewhere. Because they got tackled and they thought their world fell apart, but it was just part of the game. Do you know, when you, when you send your nine-year-old out to play rugby, do you know as a parent, it's not an irresponsible or dangerous thing to do? Uh, some people may disagree, but it's, I'm, I'm absolutely sure it's not. Because that nine-year-old will get hurt but won't get broken. When God sends you into the game of life, He's not risking your death. He's just putting you in a place where you can grow and develop. He's putting you in a place where you can have fun and enjoy life. He's putting you in a place where you have the opportunity to pick yourself up from time to time and run and rejoin the game because there's something important and powerful about being able to stand up when you got hurt. The game moves on. You're hurt, not broken. The game changes as well. Imagine how long you're going to lie in the puddle. Rejoin the game. Aaron's wearing white. Someone picked this one out. Do you know the game doesn't just move on? The game changes. Do you know you run the risk? When you go down, when you get tackled and you go down in life, you run the risk not only of the game advancing beyond you, but of the game changing so you can't play it. Do you know this? This is, what, this is how it works. You can you get knocked off your purpose. You can get knocked off your destiny to such an extent where embarrassment prevents you from owning up, hey, I got hurt, then I, then I, then I was a wimp about it, and then I got embarrassed, then I was too embarrassed to rejoin. You can run the risk of never being able to rejoin the game because you're wearing the wrong uniform, you've got a mouth guard, and everyone else is playing cricket. I wonder how many Christians in Christchurch tonight are completely out of the game. Not the game of church, because we're not here playing the game of church. We're playing the game of life purpose that transforms the world. It's a much more important game. The team we play for is church, but the game we're playing is change the world. It's very significant. It's a very significant difference. We're not here to make church great. We're here to make Christ church great. We're not here to worship equippers. We're here to worship Jesus, exalting His plan, exalting His purpose. Amen. Everyone say, the game changes. The game moves on. Everyone say, I am hurt. I'm not broken. Do you know, the reality is this. God knows you can't even break. 
you can't break. You can just get so far behind you miss the game. But you can't break. I, this is what I think. I think there are some people who are Christians that don't think they are. You know, you meet those people, oh, I don't really, I'm not really a Christian anymore. God's like, yes, you are. I saw you put your hand up. I really think that. They're not living their purpose. They're not living their destiny. But you know, there's something. Under the, the, the Scripture's not easy to interpret, right? But there's something in Scripture that says the promises of God are without repentance. There's something in the Scripture that says God will never leave you without a witness. There's something in Scripture that says you can't break, really. You can get so hurt that you miss your purpose, but you can't break, really. I reckon when we get to heaven, there's, there's, there's two things going to happen. A lot of people are going to be surprised to be there. I can't believe I'm here. Right? If I get there, I'll be in that group. I'm surprised to be here. Right? There's going to be a lot of surprise at who's not there. But we're the group of people who are going to be there, and we're the group of people who are going to be surprised because we know what's going on in our world, right? And we're only doing our best. But it's not about the fact you're covered in mud. That's just part of the game. It's not about the fact that you got hurt. That's just part of the game. But the choice you have to make is do I get out of the puddle and run and rejoin the game? Okay. Grab your Bibles because we've been at church, right? Um, <coughs> Look at the screen over here if you can't be bothered even lifting your Bible off the floor. Oh, opening it up. Right. Oh, that's not the one I want, is that? Genesis 12, 1 to 4. Oh, I don't need the title. That's the title of my sermon, but I don't, I don't want anyone to know that yet. Because I do, I, I, what I do is I do the sermons backwards. I don't know if you've noticed this. It's all just a ramble, but I'm actually going somewhere, but no one really knows. It's a bit nerve-wracking for the people on the front row who organized for me to be here, but I like to keep interested. Hold on. I'm going to put my microphone down just one second. I'm starting to sweat like crazy. Anyway, here we go. The Lord said to Abraham, have you ever heard this story before? Give me a show of hands. Heard the Abraham story? Give me a show if you've never heard this story. Give me a show of hands. Okay, handful of people. We'll recap it briefly, but young man, young woman, sorry, young person, we'll just go with that. You need to commit to read this later because I don't want to get into too much detail. Is that okay? You don't look certain. <laughs> Can you nod your head in a more certain fashion? Thank you. Brilliant. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred, that's your family, and your father's house to the land that I'll show you, right? A special magical place I'll show you when you get there. Moving on. And I'll make of you a great nation. So God says, come, leave there. Go to another place, I'll tell you, on the way. Go there. Leave there. Go there. Leave your family, family, your friends. Leave everything you know behind and go somewhere else. And I'm going to turn you, I'm going to take you as one thing and turn you into this multiplied force, right? I'll make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And him, this is pretty intense, him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now, that's pretty amazing, right? So if, if someone blesses me, God's going to bless them. But if someone gives me the slight cold shoulder, God's going to curse them. Like it seems a disproportionate response. <laughs> But I like it. I like it. I like it. I like the fact that if you cut me off in traffic, I'm like, whoa, wow. I blow the horn just as a warning. Like, whoa, you should pull over now. Get off the road. You just dishonored me. 
I didn't, I, I, I didn't make the rules. I'm just telling you. You just cut me off in traffic. I would expect your car to burst into flames at any moment. That's what I'm doing when I'm hooting the horn and waving at them. That's what I mean. Pull over. That's what that sign means. Pull over. It's only, I'm only thinking of their safety. Okay? Anyone who dishonors you, I will curse. Right this though. And in you, all of the families on the earth will be blessed. Now, this is really weird language. But it, it's, the language is strange to us because it's connected to Abraham's psyche. Abraham's this tribal God, this is an ancient, ancient story, 6,000-year-old story, and Abraham's living in, right in the cradle of civilization in Mesopotamia. He, he lives in the center of human civilization as it's emerging, and God calls him and says, hey, travel from, travel from this city to a place where there no cities exist. Travel from this place where they have writing to a place where they haven't started writing anything yet. Travel from a place that has language and culture and history to a place where it's literally, the place God ultimately takes them, is literally just like nomadic tribes following sheep and killing them to eat them as they go, right? Not really farming, they're just following a group of sheep. It's like, there's nowhere on earth now, really, like where God was sending him. There, there might be, there's a few people who like, but God says, leave Leave the very pinnacle of civilization. So where Abraham was was New York City or London, right? And go to the go to a part of the world that's not yet civilized. Right? And then I'm gonna make you into something great and powerful. That's like leave Christchurch and go to Westport. It's a land full of opportunity. Hey, it's not even that. It's leave New York City and go to Western Southland. All the Auckland Islands, I'm going to make you something great. Like the whole thing makes no sense. And then God says, through all the families on the earth, because they didn't have nations like we have, they only had families and tribes. And he said, all of the families on the earth are going to be blessed through you as you go to the edge. Now, everything, everything in human society usually flows from the center but God calls them to the edge. Now, we know now that all innovation happens on the edge. All new things happen on the edge. But in our mindset, we think everything powerful either comes out of Wellington or Auckland or Christchurch. That's how we sort of imagine it, right? We go those places for opportunity. But God calls Abraham illogically to the edge of the known universe. Literally, for this to make sense for us today, God would have to tell you to go to Mars. That's where God told Abraham to go. God would have to take, it's a one-way trip. It's like our ancestors came from England or Hawaii or the combination thereof, right? It was one way. My family who came to Christchurch from London, my dad's family, they, they, had, they had two children when they left, a third on the boat. Then they carried everything they owned over the bridal path, like many others, right? And then they lived in Kayapoi in a tent for four years. And had three more children. I'm like, that's a really, you got to keep warm, you got to keep warm. The reality is this. The reality is this. These are people, that's like an Abraham journey. Right? That's an Abraham journey. One of their sons, Gabriel, who we're descended from, started a butchery business, which was the family trade. And his job was he went into the works at the start of the day, would buy a whole beast, cut it up, and then sell it door to door. 
if he didn't make enough money for another whole beast the next day, he was out of business and sort of out of life. Now, this is the sort of thing that he's calling to Abraham. He says, come on, leave everything you know, go one-way journey to the edge of the world, right? And then I'll show you on the way how you go when you get there, right? So Abraham left. The Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old, right? Everyone say, that's old. That's older than Pastor Tico, right? 75. Lot went with him. Abraham departed from Haran. Okay, jumping across to, uh, Hebrews chapter 6, 12. It says this. You need to press on. This is what it sort of says. But so that you not be sluggish, but imitators of those through, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Then it goes on to reference Abraham. So Abraham inherits this promise, this promise of God, and he inherits it through faith and patience. So faith is this thing where God speaks to Abraham and Abraham leaves behind and pushes towards this promise. I've always thought that God... I've always thought, I don't know about you, I've always thought when I think about the story of Abraham, Abraham's either some sort of rube, like he's like either massive dunderhead or God's incredibly tricky. Like, wow, how do you trick someone into just leaving everything behind to go somewhere? Hey, what are you doing today? Oh, just hanging out at home. Hey, come with me. Where are we going? To a place. I'll tell you, it's a place. Right? And how many, how many know that is the more someone says it's a special promised land, the less likely I am to go. Uh, what about you? Like, oh, come with me, Caleb. I'm going to this place. It's a magical place. It's a wonderful place. It's a beautiful place. You'll love it. Where is it? I'll tell you on the way. Now, don't get into the van with the man with the lollies. Do not do that, right? So I've always thought maybe God's sort of tricky, but then I think, no, I think Abraham's not the dumbest person in, the, in, in, in ancient Chaldean. He's the smartest. Abraham hears something, he sees something, he believes something, and he leaves behind a culture and presses towards a promise. Now, there's a, there's a political thing I'm about to say, and it's this, that culture is always dead. It's only promises that are alive. The reality is this, the people throughout history who've worked hard to, to maintain culture, don't inherit promise. The businesses that constantly maintain the way we do things now, they're the ones that go out of business. The businesses that say, what's the next thing and where are we going? Those are the ones that have, you know, the nations that focus on the past and their history are the ones that die. There's two countries in Africa that are interesting. One is Zimbabwe, one is Botswana. They're immediately next to each other. They have similar land resources, similar property. I'm not, I'm not an expert in geography, but they're very similar countries and they have a similar terrible history. In Zimbabwe, when, when, when independence came, they focused on the past and they said, we're going to redress all of the hurts. We're going to refix the system so that no one, everyone who's dispossessed is then in possession, right? And in Botswana, they made a conscious decision to forget the history. We can't, and they made this decision, we can't fix what happened. We need to position our country for the future. Now, look at the two countries. One of them is, they're both similar land resources. They both were incredibly wealthy parts of, the, of Africa that supplied massive resources to, their, to the empires that controlled them. 
but one of them is an economic ruin and one of them is the richest country or second richest country in Africa based on where they were focusing. Your, let me tell you this, your culture is dead. Now, can I explain this? Your culture is dead, but it's your promise and it's your progress towards promise. That's where life is. It's the, so culture is dead, right? Forgetting everything and just jumping into the future is stupid, right? But stepping from your culture towards your promise, from the past towards your promise, this is life. This one and then this one. That this is called the way in ancient thought. The step from what you know, one foot in what you know, one foot in what's new. Now you know that and another step. Right? That's called the way, the way of life. The, uh, that's what, the, that's what that yin-yang thing is. It's one foot here and one foot there. Right? That's what Jesus said when he said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough problems of its own. Worry about today. Right? And that's what God says to Abraham, leave that behind and go to a land that I'm going to show you. Abraham is smart enough to know that that's enough. Here's the thing. What we have in our modern society, in our, in our modern thinking around vision, our modern thinking around uh, our career planning, our career path, is we think we need to know the destination. Like I was chatting with Ruben today. He's year 13. And what's your plan for next year? And he says, I think, I think I'm going to go here and study that. And I said, that's, that's enough. That's enough of a plan. Because you don't need to know the destination. You don't need to know what the destination is. You just need to know the correct direction. Because whatever the destination God has for you, you don't get there unless you're on the correct direction. Have you... Okay. What time, how much time have we got? Forget digression to three-letter words. But the, all of your human psyche breaks down to three-letter words. Cat, dog, way. You need to know the way. What's the way? The way is the amount of distance you can travel in a day. I just may go down to the bay. Anyway, <laughs> quote from a great movie. But forget it. The reality is this. You don't need to know your destination. You just need to know the direction you're going today. And you get to the correct destination only by maintaining the correct direction for long enough. How do you know when you get there? Well, usually there's a sign. Welcome to. You know, kids are immature. They ask stupid questions. Are we there yet? Well, we're still driving, right? I'm doing 120. I'm doing 100 kilometers an hour. If we were there, we would have just driven through grandma's house, right? We're clearly not there. How do you know you're there? Do you know, I know you're not there because we're still moving, right? Are we there yet? No, we're not. Keep the doors closed. We're still moving, right? But we say the same thing to God. Oh, is this the right place? Do you know what? It's not. You're not in the right place, so keep moving. Oh, I just wish my life. We've got this obsession about we've got this obsession about being in the right place, but we don't translate that into taking steps in the right direction until we see a sign and God pulls the car over and says, "Everyone get out." Then what? Don't ask. Are we there yet? Because you are. There's the playground. There's Grandma. Right? You're there now. Okay, okay. Here's the thing. God says to Abraham, go, right? 
and they go west. West. West is that way. Hold up. I've got a compass here. Now, <laughs> okay, for the sake for the sake of argument, west is that way. Am I correct? Or for the actual for pure science, west, east. Okay, so uh, if you read uh, Genesis chapter two, Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden and they are sent in what direction? Cain moved east of Eden. East. And God says to Abraham, go to a land that I'm showing you. Go west. Right? Let's not sing the song. Right? Go east, east of Eden, and then God says, go west. Yeah? Cool? Wait for this, right? Okay. Which way are you traveling right now? Can I suggest this to you? When you maintain a stationary position, you're moving east very, very fast. But you don't know it because here's uh, Galileo found out, and we haven't. Not everyone knows this, right? But the Earth is round, the sun is not rising and setting. In relationship to us, the sun is also moving, but in our relationship to us, the sun is sort of standstill because it's so big, and the Earth's actually rotating, which what makes it look like the sun is rising in the east. Right? So as the sun looks like the sun's rising and traveling across the sky, really in perspective-wise, it's staying still, and we're spinning towards the east at an incredible speed. I want to suggest to you in your own life as well, unless you're moving west, you are moving east. You're moving east at a great speed. Okay, let's say you've got a financial pressure, bit of financial pressure, your husband and wife discussing it, and someone says, oh, we'll just see what happens. Okay, can I tell you what happens when you just see what happens? A, a sticky brown material will let into a fan. That's what will happen, right? And it will spray everywhere, right? Let's say, let's say, let's say your kids are struggling in school and you think, oh, we'll see what happens. You know, what, when you see what happens, it's a bad movie. That's how you watch a horror movie, right? Right? Let's just see what happens. Well, it sounds, it sounds like a wheel is falling off the car. Well, let's just see what happens. No, pull over. Right? Are we going in the right direction? Oh, we'll see whether we get there or not. You know, what? no, don't just see what happens. Decide what happens. Go west. Take one step in the right direction. It's a journey of a million, billion steps, and you'd never get there. How do you know you get there when you see grandma? Particularly if your grandma's already dead. When you see grandma, you know that you've got there, right? Up until then, keep taking steps west. Well, I don't really know what God's plan for my life is. Well, here's the deal. God's plan is for you to move closer to the Garden of Eden and further away from the east. To move closer. What does God's plan not include? Don't kill people. Don't sell drugs. Don't do drugs, right? Don't destroy things. Don't be rude to other people. Be kind to other people. There's a whole lot of things that are east and you know it. And there's a whole lot of things in the west and you know it. Just go that way. West is a pretty big, it's a pretty big, uh, you know, portfolio. Go, go that way. 
not that. Well, I'm sort of traveling north, north, northwest. Well, that's better than north, northeast. What's the difference between a life slowly careering out of control and just being destroyed by sin versus one slowly moving in the right direction? It's 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 tiny difference. I'm not, you know, you know. Once you're 42, you realize going pure directly west is pretty hard. Do you know what I mean? I'm happy. I'm happy beyond 180 degrees as long as we're going. As long as we're, if we're going to fall over, let's fall that way. Because the alternative is that you you end up just missing everything God has for you, versus moving towards it. Good. Everyone say, go west. Okay, so you have to get up and get out of the pond. You have to get moving because the game is going to change. And we'll end up playing the wrong game. We've got to go west. Now, one of the things that I reckon would be the scariest thing in the world is, is what uh, all of our ancestors have done is, is that one-way trip. You didn't get to New Zealand on the way anywhere else, right? Your ancestors came here. And they left somewhere pretty good. My ancestors left London. Now, their life was miserable, but London is a pretty important city. Lots of opportunity. But they left there. They sold everything, bought one-way tickets to Littleton. To, to, there was a farm, apparently. <laughs> Turned out to be just a big bush block, right? A lot of trees, in the far, a lot of trees to move first, right? But our other ancestors were in canoes traveling across the Pacific. It's hard to imagine navigating for months and months at a time, day and night, on a featureless ocean. You don't, literally, you, you, you barely need to get, you don't have to go very far offshore before you can't see anything. Like, if you're in a, like you can do it in a small sailing boat, right? It's terrifying. As soon as the land disappears, it's like, it's deep space. Right? And it's not like, you know, when, when they're navigating those ships, it's not like they're like, okay, count for five waves and then turn left. <laughs> you lit- literally, you've got nothing to navigate on. You've only got the sun in the daytime and the stars at night. How many of you know it's pretty easy to navigate when the sun's out? Not for everybody, but for those of us with a small bit of spatial awareness, we can do north, south, east, west, right? How many, uh, where do we go driving in the car? When we lived in London, particularly, we'd drive around, and, and the UK is quite flat, so you don't, you don't sort of know where you are unless you know where you are. And we'd drive all day, me and Chrissy, and then as we pulled into our street, Chrissy would say, oh, I know where we are. I'm like, I've known where we are the whole day. How could you not know where we are? You know, literally, she doesn't care, right? But the reality is, when the sun's in the sky... In the morning, you know, well, that's east. And in the afternoon, you know, well, that's sort of west. And as long as we're just trying to go that way, we can figure it out. But at night, how many know it's a whole lot different? Did you know more than 98% of the night sky is complete darkness? Anyone know that feeling? Which way should we go? Oh, we'll navigate by the stars. Most of what you can see is nothing. Do you know, navigating in the daytime, your Christian life, navigating your Christian life in the daytime, that's easy. 
right? When you're feeling good, it's easy to go to church. It's easy to read your Bible. It's easy to do the right thing, right? But it's navigating at night or in storms. That's where you need to be a whole lot more focused on what you're doing. Because even though the night sky is 98.9% complete darkness, you don't navigate by the darkness. You navigate by the light. And for generations, we've been able to get from Europe to the Pacific by navigating by the small pinpricks of light in an otherwise blackened ceiling. And could I suggest to you that's exactly what you need to do in your personal world? There are seasons in your life where it's 98.9% complete darkness. So you could stare into the darkness and drift east, or you can navigate by the small pinpricks of light, God's promises to you, God's word to you. There's this other scripture that we'll read, if that's all right, before we wrap it up. There's two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. We who have fled to Him for refuge have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that He set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into, now you've got to catch this, it enters into an inner place behind the curtain or the hedge, the thorns and the thistles. Behind the curtain, the thorns and the thistles that keep us from the garden, right? It goes in there where Jesus has gone already as a forerunner. That's the crown of thorns is the hedge of thorns, right? Jesus has gone through that, and he's gone as an anchor and a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, right? I think, is there another verse, or is that it? Just leave that one up there. Is that all right? Okay, this one verse, the writer of Hebrews is possibly Paul, possibly someone called, oh, we could make, I was going to make up a funny name, but I couldn't think of one. Right, okay, so we've got, we've got hope. Hope is a sure and steadfast anchor, which is sort of like Jesus, and this, Jesus is this hope, and Jesus is this anchor, and this anchor has gone ahead of us, right? I don't know if you've seen an anchor. This is a strange picture. So I was Googling, as you do, and I Googled, what is an anchor for? Now, it popped up immediately, because obviously thousands of other people have asked the same question. We all know what an anchor's for is, right? An anchor's the heavy part, the heavy hooky thing on the front of the ship. You drop it in, and it's heavy, and it's hooky, so it hooks in heavily to hook down to the bottom. Right? It hooks into something immovable, and invisible. Remember, for the ancient people, a meter deep that was completely unknown to them. The, the invention of goggles changed everything. Up until goggles, they couldn't see anything under there, right? There's other inventions as well, but goggles, the principal one. When you dropped an anchor, you had no idea what it was connecting to. Just something under there. Well, there we go. And now you have an anchor holding you in an otherwise completely changing, everything's changing, the storm's blowing, the waves are blowing, everything's moving, but I've got one thing not moving and I'm connected to it. There's an invisible rock somewhere that's holding me on the surface. This is what you need because life is not without storms. And there are moments where you can only navigate by an anchor. 
The stars are gone. Well, effectively they're gone there. We know they're still there, right? But there's clouds between us and the stars. The ship is breaking up. Do you know what they do in the, in the storm when they're trying to get to the harbour? The first thing they do is they chuck everything overboard that they don't need. Literally, they chuck everything overboard except the people. Do you know when a storm comes, it's not usually the devil. It's usually God just trying to encourage you to get rid of some resentment, some hurt, some bitterness, some money that you don't need, some ambition that you don't need. Do you know, in this church, when we went through a storm, do you know what we did? We throw everything overboard except the people. Everything else doesn't matter. We, we throw everything overboard except the people. Do you know they throw spare parts of the ship? They cut the mast off and chuck the mast and the sails off. They do everything they can to lighten the vessel so it rides higher in the water. If you're in a storm, do everything you can to lighten the vessel. Get rid of everything you can think of, everything that might hold you down in the water. Get everything off because the goal in life is to stay above the water. Right? Unless you have girls, stay up above the water. And then what they would do is they'd take the anchor and they'd put it into a small boat and they would row it ahead. That's what this passage is referring to. They'd row the anchor ahead to where they want to go. So they'd row it around a headland and drop it in the harbour. Then they'd row back to the boat. And then they would, the, the line would come around a massive capstan, which is like a, a cotton reel with, toothpick, uh, with matchsticks in it, but then scaled up to the size of a human. right? And they would walk around. So five, six, ten guys would walk around a capstan, connecting the rope, so the rope's connected below the water, beyond what we can see, into the harbour of God's promise. And all we need to do is maintain our connection to Christ and keep moving around the capstan. This is the deal. We inherit the promises through faith, our faith in. We don't have faith that saves us. We have faith in the faithfulness of Christ that saves us. Because like you know deep down, you don't have enough faith. All you need to have is enough faith to believe in the faithfulness of the Messiah whose faithfulness saves us. We only need to keep walking around the capstan and it's the strength of the anchor that holds us. Just like any sailor, they don't try and hold the ship in the harbour. They just try and hold on to the anchor, which holds the ship into the harbour. In reality, the whole ship can break up. You can be lying on a log in the open ocean. Some of you know this feeling. As long as you're still holding the rope, you get to the harbour. You get past what you can't see, past all the drama, past all the pressure, simply by holding on the rope and taking what? One step west every day. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.